Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome Chris Allwine, Global Head of Credit at Vanguard. How are you, Chris? Uh, doing well. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to dig into your market view and your outlook. We're also delighted to welcome back Bloomberg's very own Lisa Lee, who covers credit markets from London. Great to see you again, Lisa. Thanks for having me here. And from Bloomberg Intelligence, fantastic to have Steve Flynn. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with you, Chris. It's great to have you on the Credit Edge. Obviously, Vanguard is a very important and large market participant with over $7 trillion in assets. Credit markets are at very tight levels in terms of spread, investment-grade bonds, lowest in two years, uh, which means you're not really getting paid very much for the risk. Meanwhile, we keep seeing record levels of issuance. Companies have a lot more refinancing to do this year, and they're taking advantage of a window to sell a lot of debt. Um, and then we're watching the economy, you know, maybe slow down a bit this year, which will have an impact on earnings. And then rates remain very high. Perhaps they won't come down as fast or as hard as some markets seem to be betting. It's also supposed to be the year of the bond, again, although returns haven't been great this month, with duration and low-quality junk performing worse. Let's start there, Chris. In this environment, is credit fairly priced? Are you being compensated enough for all the risks of downgrades, defaults, and bankruptcies? Where do we go from here? We would argue that credit in the short run is fairly valued uh, and may have some opportunities. And the biggest driver of that is the timing of the recession call and the depth of the recession. So our official view is a risk of a shallow recession in the second half of the year. But what mitigates that risk now is a Fed that uh, uncharacteristically is being very proactive, potentially preemptive to support economic growth. And so the old adage of don't fight the Fed, the Fed is underwriting risk-taking effectively with not an official easing bias, but looking to cut rates in the future. And so in a world where inflation is around target and the Fed willing to cut, we do feel that valuation should be on the full side, which they are. They're about the 20th percentile over 20 years, but they don't necessarily have to widen. And so when we look at uh, corporate bonds and credit, with the all-in yields attractive and with corporate fundamentals generally healthy, with even with heavy supply, a technical position within the corporate bond market is relatively healthy in terms of net supply, that we can see credit perform okay, not extraordinary outperformance in the first half of the year. 
if we look beyond that, our concerns begin to grow. So let's go um, talk about rates, Chris. I mean, how many rate cuts do you expect this year and when do they start? So our best guess is uh, the uh, May and June timeframe is where we would get the first cut. Uh, we think the March, March ease is probably a bit premature. Waller's laid out a number of uh, number of thresholds that need to be maintained, inflation staying at these levels, labor markets continuing to weaken, growth a little bit below trend. Uh, we think it's 50-50, maybe a little bit less, but they can actually uh, cut in, in March. Uh, we don't think that has a huge impact, though, on uh, corporate bonds. And we're, we're looking at it where if they were to ease in March or any time in the second quarter, we don't think that is really disruptive. However, we believe that the later they do their first cut, the risk of recession begins to increase. You know, the, the Fed, if we look at the inverted curve, it's been inverted for quite a period of time now. And we're getting into a danger zone. I think the Fed recognizes this, and that's why they're thinking about getting going with cuts and doing it gradual, that the risk of further labor market weakening by the middle of the year is what could be uh, the driver of the shallow recession. So in rate levels, we view the rate call a bit challenging now, simply because the market has priced in, there was up to seven cuts in the next year, now down to about six. That's a fairly aggressive path for a world with a shallow recession. So we don't think that there's great values in long duration, although we are biased to be uh, longer duration and a steepening, given that the Fed is beginning an easing cycle, but that is mitigated or lessened in a way simply because a lot has been priced in and that our recession outlook is shallow for the second half of the year, as well as the idea that the, uh, the neutral rate is higher than it's been in the past. So when you talk about concerns for the second half, you know, good first half, but a, but a potentially bad second half, what are those concerns? And is it, um, you know, a big increase in defaults? And, and where are the pain points for credit? You know, the, the biggest issue with this is that 23 was the easy year in a sense. So the, the slowdown in the labor market came from a reduction in job openings. So job openings to unemployment rate, we didn't really get a change in unemployment but we did get a fall off in openings. If we project that pace out, it's only about another six months or so, we're gonna be at a point that any further weakening in the labor market will result in higher unemployment rates. And ultimately that comes from pressures on corporate margins as well as earnings. And we don't see that in the first half of the year as much in the second half of the year. And so we believe that the what would uh, precipitate that uh, shallow recession is that corporations are just not hiring with a modest increase in layoffs coming from the idea that margins weaken a bit and earnings aren't growing as fast as, um, as uh, companies would like to see. So does that mean uh, downgrades of investment grade credit? Does it mean more defaults by by high yield? Not initially. Uh, we saw a lot more upgrades and downgrades uh, in 23. You know, what we're looking at is corporate fundamentals that are relatively healthy. 
the triple B space, they have where the leverage has increased. Oftentimes, investors look to that is in non-cyclical companies who are in essentially a deleveraging mode. We expect that to continue. Where we would see vulnerabilities are in A-rated industrial credits that have the capacity to lever up, possibly through acquisitions, where we would see spreads or valuations are quite tight, I would say quite poor, with the risk of a leveraging transaction that would result in a downgrade in a weakening economic environment. And so where we see vulnerabilities are in higher rated industrial credits uh, simply from M&A activity. We do believe that triple B issuers are very committed to triple B, their triple B ratings. Certainly they've levered up over the past decade, really optimizing their balance sheet, return on equity, cost of capital type of arguments. And we, we would expect that we wouldn't see large amounts of downgrades in a shallow recession in the coming year. Now, a sector we do like is banks. Uh, banks tend to issue inside of 10 years, inside of five years in particular. It's actually one area where valuations are not stretched. Valuations are about 50th percentile and a steeper yield curve, strong fundamentals within banks and valuations that are 50th percentile with the added benefit that when the Fed begins to cut rates, we should see a movement, and this is a big question out there in the market today, out of money fund assets, which are at record highs, into, we would argue, short to intermediate term bond funds. And they will look to, uh, once yields are meaningfully, materially higher than money funds, look to lock in those yields in a period where positive excess returns and bonds are in place. And so within IG, that's where the opportunities and risks are in our view. Now, when it comes to high yield, we would argue that the high yield market today is not the high yield market of 10, 15, 20 years ago. The credit quality is significantly higher. Fundamentals are stronger. And we've seen that with the benign economic environment with exceptionally low default rates in the 1% to 2% range. We do expect those to rise over the coming year, certainly would rise in a recession. But if we were to see typical recession, seven, eight, nine, 10% default rates, we don't expect it to be that way. So we would expect default rates to be lower than what you would see in a normal garden variety recession, maybe in the three to 5% range and downgrades uh, certainly within high yield and IG to be lower than what we have seen historically. Just going back to the banks, though, briefly, Chris, um, they have been issuing a ton of debt this month and they probably do a few more deals because there are a couple of other big banks to come. But um, does your interest and your liking of that sector extend to the regional banks, which uh, may be more exposed to commercial real estate pressures? You know, it, do it does extend. Now, we're more selective in regionals than the large money center banks. The, the issue is when we look at real estate, and we've looked at this deeply, is that a lot of the price adjustments are taking place as we speak. And the process of real, realizing these losses, crystallizing them, does take place over number, a number of years, whether it's in a bank or whether it's in a, a commercial mortgage-backed security. And so our, our view is that the concentration of commercial real estate is generally in the small community-like banks. So our concerns would be in that space, but the characteristic about those banks is they don't really 
issue in the markets. And so the higher credit quality or the larger banks, the middle-sized banks and the very large banks actually generally don't have that much uh, commercial real estate experience. And even in stress scenarios, we believe that is more of an earnings hit than a rating event. And we would argue that in a scenario where the curve steepens from lower uh, short rates, you know, policy rate coming down, that that would be beneficial to banks. And so selective in the, uh, the regional space, and we certainly like the, the large money center banks. So taking a step back and back into IG and high yield, leveraged loans returned phenomenally last year. Do you expect that to continue? And what's the outlook for floating rate, given your thoughts on rates and maybe a shallow recession in the second half? Yes, uh, that is an area that we are more defensive on. So when I talked about in bond space and high yield, the market today is much higher credit quality than it would have been 15 years ago. In loan space, it's actually lower quality. And so there's been a convergence between the fundamental credit quality of a loan relative to a bond. And loans typically had senior priority uh, with a lot of debt underneath them. That isn't the case as much today as in the past. And so where we would see uh, downgrades and, and, and possibly defaults would be in loan-only issuers who have been more stressed from the rise in short rates, uh, meaning interest costs are going up, interest coverage going down. And so we believe that credit fundamentals and loan only investors need to be selective. You know, the double whammy in the scenario is in a, tough of, a time of tougher uh, economic conditions, the credit quality stressed, but also that the Fed is cutting policy rates. Investors may actually want to own more duration and not be in fo uh, floating rate instruments. And so we are much less constructive on loans than we are in high yield. Now, when we think about overall high yield to investment grade, we are very defensive within high yield today. And that would be overall allocations to high yield. So although we still like credit in this window of soft landing theme, Fed supporting risk taking, we've preferred to do that in higher quality, meaning investment grade than, uh, than in high yield space. And then within high yield, Generally, we like double Bs over single Bs. If you look at risk-adjusted returns, double Bs actually, of all rating buckets, are the most attractive. And so overweights to double Bs, underweights to single Bs, defensive on loans, as well as looking for types of issuers that will be less cyclical in a recessionary scenario environment has been our, uh, our approach to investment grade as well as high yield. When you look at high yield and leveraged loans, and you're very defensive there and have some caution, the unsecured bond market hasn't really been opened. Second lien loans, it's sort of the junior debt. Given the economic outlook, are you thinking that that's going to be shuttered for a while, or is it about time maybe this year where that market comes back slowly or maybe roaring back? Yeah, I mean, the, the high yield bond market, um, we haven't seen the issuance that we'd like to see. It's not because the demand isn't there. It's just that the issuers haven't been in to the uh, into issuing 
at levels, the need for capital, the rates, and what are options that they can do. We do expect to see higher issuance within, um, within bond space this year than we had in the past, but we don't expect to see huge amounts of issuance that would somehow overwhelm the market in a technical condition. In terms of down in the capital structure type of loans, that's really around the confidence in the economy. And uh, I think that having a vibrant market in that area when most investors feel that we're later in the cycle is going to be a tougher sale than being up in quality. So I don't think that our views are terribly different than a typical market uh, participant now given the economic cycle. The biggest challenge with the economic cycle is the ability to pull off a soft landing is going to be dependent on how similar the world is today than post GFC. So post GFC, we were in a world of very stable inflation. Around 2% didn't move all that much. And growth was uh, 1.8, 1.7, somewhere in that range. It was sort of a fairly benign environment that left the Fed on a hold. So to pull this off, the Fed's going to have to get lucky that the world is more like that environment than the new world that we've experienced. And there is a chance because we know that a lot of the excess growth and in inflation came from supply chain as well as maybe fiscal transfers that are transitory in nature. But it takes more than that. For the Fed, it actually takes them to go early. And that's where the risk lies. And it does appear that based on the scenarios or environments that Waller laid out, that the Fed is willing to take that risk in a risk management approach early and slow if they things, see the things continue. But that's risky. If they're too early, we get a reacceleration. And so when we think about high yield as well as IG and credit in general, we feel there's a window here, but this window is likely to close. Either the Fed doesn't go and cuts get pushed back into the year and the further cuts get pushed back, then the risk of recession rises. Or if they were to go early and the economic numbers support it, but then tend to turn to higher growth or higher inflation and they have to reverse, then they are back into removing cuts from the market and you get a backup in rates and then credit gets pressured here. So I would look at somewhat of a Goldilocks environment that doesn't have a shelf life that's going to last a year or two. But there's a window here where the economics are coming in in a range that seems like uh, it's good for the Fed with the Fed supporting risk assets. And then if we think about a high yield, it's more of just a levered play on those themes where you're going to have a lot more beta uh, associated with it, a lot more idiosyncratic risk if we were to get a recession. On the um, defensive high yield view, though, Chris, are you not sort of at risk of uh, losing out on some big returns like, um, you know, those who went into last year, very defensive and triple C's, you know, rallied, they're off the charts. Everything risk did really, really well. And if you were cautious, um, you, your portfolio underperformed against the index. Um, you know, in this in this scenario, you're laying out with, with sort of low defaults. Um, it doesn't look that risky. And then you, on top of that, you've got the massive demand for yield and not a lot, not a lot of supply. So... Um, is there not a case, a strong case to be, to be, you know, more uh, risk taking? It is the only area 
within high yield. If we look at the spread of high yield to investment grade, triple Bs to double Bs, very tight. Overall, double B, single B, where most of high yield issuance is to investment grade, very tight. There's room for compression. Not a lot, though. Maybe 25 basis points, double B, single B to investment grade, and maybe 50 to 75 for the entire high yield universe, which includes triple Cs. So what that's saying is the only area in high yield that has some juice left in it is triple C's. But it is the one rating bucket that is most levered to the economic outlook. And with our view that uh, if we're saying if soft landing, no landing type of thing where we get reacceleration or shallow recession, you know, we lean more towards shallow recession in the second half of the year, which would be tougher on triple C's than it would be on double B's. And so, but we are certainly exposed that if we were to get that uh, evasive or not evasive, but that uh, very difficult to pull off, elusive is the word I'm thinking of, elusive type of soft landing, we should expect to see triple C's tighten into fairly tight levels to higher rated uh, high yield buckets, as well as continued tightening within IG space. But as I talked about earlier, that's difficult to pull off and requires a little bit of luck, meaning a world similar to post GFC economic, as well as a Fed that is willing to take chances and cut early and, and consistently. Yeah. Okay. And just back on IG for a second, um, on the sectors that you like, we did a bit of research on the Bloomberg terminal on your portfolios. Um, there seems to be a little bit of a bias towards um, telecoms. We have our TMT expert here, Steve Flynn from Bloomberg Intelligence. Is that a sector that you that you particularly like right now? Is it, Or is it just you're naturally overweight because they've got so much debt? Well, there, there's two themes. They fit into our themes. The sectors we end up liking are financials, as well as consumer non-cyclicals in the triple B area. And so telecom sort of fits that, pharma fits that. And so companies that have already levered that are non-cyclical in basis who have committed to deleveraging tend to be a good story. And so you're seeing sectors in triple B industrials that, that fit that mold. Uh, and then the financial story I already talked about in the A and above bucket. So I would argue that they're the two themes that we have in investment grade space, along with uh, front end has room to tighten the one to five year maturity range. Yeah, and if you look at uh, the largest names in communications, there's some of the largest names in investment grade index, uh, AT&T, Verizon, they are looking to deleverage their balance sheet and improve their leverage ratios over the next couple of years. And then even a company like T-Mobile, which is at their leverage ratio, is in a good position to maintain that leverage ratio. So I agree. Yep. That's the thinking behind it. Yeah, the danger is in the A-rated bucket, where opportunities may be too good to turn up for a company who goes into a re-leveraging, and then they become actually excellent buys. So if you have a low A who becomes a high triple B or a mid triple B who's committed to deleveraging, they end up being the stories that we like underweight in the A bucket, overweight in the triple B bucket. Chris, you also do global credit. So can we move on to outside the US? And I'm based in London. And how do you think through European credit, IG, high yield, leverage loans, and maybe even further afield, China emerging markets? Where are the best values there? What are you excited about or cautious about? 
I would say Europe um, is cheap to U.S. And so generally we like Europe. However, uh, Europe is a bit challenged with higher recession risk in the near term. And so that lessens. So when I think about uh, uh, Europe, I would say modest overweight is where we're where we like to be in European relative to U.S. Uh, within the emerging market space, uh, we really don't get involved in Chinese corporates. And the big reason there is the transparency around the disclosure and the rating buckets is a bit of a challenge for us. And so in having confidence in, in these names while the economy is going through a massive restructuring. And if you see a lot of the issuance, either in banks or in uh, developers, sort of two tough sectors in China today. Within emerging markets, uh, you know, that what we like best in emerging markets is a little bit more on the rate side. So local rates uh, in emerging market countries, we like a lot. We feel that one, the level of their, their policy rate is quite elevated and that they would have further to cut to normalize. Some might do it a bit before the Fed. Some might do it around the time of the Fed or slightly after the Fed, if we're talking about Mexico. But we feel that local rates in an EM very attractive within uh, portfolios who can do that level that. You know, I within EM, uh, over the last few months, we had a large underweight to uh, investment grade EM, got to quite rich levels. So if we think of average EM IG to US corporates, maybe you pick up 30, 40 basis points, well, it got to about flat to even through. And we felt that they were very rich. We are beginning to see values come back in investment grade space. And that's an area that we would be looking to add to in uh, investment grade emerging markets. High yield tends to be a very story basis. And so you have a lot of distress names that distort any of the series around time series of credit spreads. And so that's really just bottom up deep analysis. However, if we think back over the cycle, the coming cycle, that EM generally does better when the Fed is easing. And so as an overall allocation in funds, uh, we feel like we're in a bit of a pause now, a little lower EM than we've had based on valuations, but we would look to see when we get some normalization there with a Fed cutting cycle, that is a sector that we, we do like uh, in, in, in funds that can invest in, in emerging markets. The last few years, it feels like geopolitical risk and uncertainty has really ticked up. So when you look at investing abroad and around the globe. How do you assess geopolitical risk or do you at all? Or is it something that you just can't factor in? It's certainly something that we look at. And we felt in the Middle East, you know, a region of the world, sadly, that has a lot of geopolitical risk that if we were to go back six months or so, we didn't feel it was priced at all uh, attractively. And that was part of the reason under the investment grade, there was a lot of investment grade emerging market or Middle Eastern issuers in the emerging market index. And so if that's risk is out there, we tend to think of that up a little bit opportunistically. When, when investors forget about it 
and they bid up the price, probably not, because it's likely to come back. Sadly, it comes back in certain regions of the world. You know, apart from that, generally, um, it's, it, it doesn't drive things as much. So it tends to be a tactical way to lean into trades or out of trades like I talked about. So the big China-U.S. trade war type of stuff or, you know, friction between uh, China and the U.S., that's here, for st here to stay. It's not going away. And uh, so we, in, we factor that into decision making. And if investors don't seem to be pricing that risk in in certain sectors and it comes back, then that's an opportunity to, uh, to either lean into a trade or away from a trade. But certainly it's one of many things we look at, um, oftentimes, though, not the primary driver of our investment decisions. When you look at EM, EM uh, Dollar uh, Credit, um, the spreads are the tightest since 2007. Um, at the same time, you're going into you know strong dollar environment, um, potentially a another Trump presidency, which hasn't been good for the EM in, in the past. Um, are you are you more cautious now than you were? We certainly were on valuations. Now, the only thing I'll caution on the time series that the mix of names today is different than what it would have been 20 years ago. There's a lot more higher quality investment grade emerging markets, Middle Eastern issuers, for example. So it's not an apples to apples comparison. But the valuations had us leaning away from investment grade credit. Uh, as they've cheapened up, we're looking to add that back. Now, the Trump presidency, you know, our, our debate on Trump, Biden, likely, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, candidates from the leading parties, we have a concern a little bit on the fiscal side here. So there may be a competition of who could promise the most tax cuts or additional government benefits in this race in a world where government deficits are at 6% of GDP without a recession. And so a lot of our focus there has been on what would that mean in a world where we don't get any fiscal contraction or discipline. It wasn't long ago when there was more fiscal risk premium in treasuries that seemed to go away when the Fed pivoted. We don't think that uh, fiscal concerns is a done deal. It's coming back. And the risk is it could come back during the campaign. And so that's certainly an area that uh, we are discussing. Now, Trump vis-a-vis -vis the world, uh, we don't see this as being that big of an issue. You know, uh, there, we've been through it once before, it tends to be at the margin, those types of things, the policy actions. And so it would fall into, let's say, maybe a little bit of geopolitical concerns. I'm not sure if it goes to risk and so forth. But we would say it's more around what is government spending in 2025, you know, with the balance of power, the White House controlling the Congress, what parties in place and so forth. So that's an area that investors should be focused on as the year moves along. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So when you look at everything um, that you look at, Chris, which is obviously a lot, and you're considering the outlook for this year, um, all across the globe, all asset classes, including structured finance, um, what is the single best opportunity for credit investors right now? I like front-end uh, spreads, front-end financials at this stage. Um, the, the big thing there is, one, you have a valuation cushion. They will do well in... In, mo in little delayed tightening, I think they'll do well if you get Fed tightening, shallow recession, all the money that will come out of money funds to buy short and intermediate. 
I would say within credit space, that is a, our number one call that we like high grade on the front end. Uh, local, uh, local markets within EM, local rates within EM would be another high one that I talked about. That's not exactly credit, but it's, it's, it's connected in around the policy cycle. And I think it's just we're in a world where investors have to be uh, vigilant. You know, right now we inflected from a tightening to an easing with the hopes of soft landing. But soft landings are difficult. And so we are likely to see another inflection point sometime around the middle of the year where we move off to, wow, economy's a little bit stronger, won't be getting as many cuts. That's a world that could pressure a little bit of risk assets. We don't think it'll be too much within uh, in credit space. Or, you know, we always think we can get a soft landing and we end up getting a recession. And we lean more in that direction, but shallow recession when we think about the second half of the year, which would certainly have credit underperform, but we're not thinking at levels that you would have in garden variety recession and certainly not GFC-like levels. So and so the big, underperformance in credit. Not big losses sorry. then for credit this year. Yeah, if you look at it, you know, the credit index, if you think GFC or COVID, we went out to 350. Average spread's 120. Yeah. If you go back, this goes way back, but if you think of the uh, the recession after the dot-com era, it got to what, 215, 200, 215 in that range. We're in the 175, 200 maybe in that type of range, yeah. which certainly would be underperformance. But remember last year we got to 160 twice yeah. at overall credit spreads and we rallied back in. And there's two reasons. One, shallow recession. And then two, fundamentals are relatively healthy in corporates. And then three, there's this huge pool of money and money funds that could come into the marketplace. However, you think about it, though, even in that scenario, and that's that would be our base case. But we have, do have to think of, you know, shallow recessions. Could it be worse? And one thing that we do spend a lot of time on is if you think through COVID was very short lived, that downturn. Yeah, and there was a lot of policy support. But we had 10 years of low rates very low rates, zero real rates. And so there were a lot of behaviors, decisions made within the economy that haven't tested like a real recession. And so whether these are the private markets, for example, where a lot of capital has flown, is that going to be an area of risk? Based on the size, we don't believe it will be. So I've done a lot of work on that. If you look at the number of of uh, people employed in those types of sectors or companies, we don't see it being that large. We actually don't see the private markets bleeding into the public markets, fairly ring-fenced and dispersed. But, you know, we could be wrong on those views. And it's something that we watch carefully, that in a recessionary environment, uh, things can appear worse for some period of time as the problems that might have been, let's say, papered over from easy policy, whether it's monetary or fiscal policy, have to be cleansed from the system. And so as we enter that, that's another area we'll be watching carefully if that scenario were, scenario were to play out. Just two points of clarity for our listeners. Um, on, on the short end, front end um, bank call, Front end, by by which you mean what? One to three years? Longer than that? How 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 short? I would I would say one to five years. Okay, one to five. Uh, okay. And generally, anywhere in those types of yep. ranges uh, yep. is, is attractive. Got it. And and on the um, IG spread, you think it could exceed one seventy five this year? Uh, I think it, I think it would be stretched. We would need to get 
a, a full recession to get out that uh, out out to that level. You know, our view is that shallow recession doesn't take us out that wide. You know, right now we're actually 95. Are we talking, you know, 125 to 150, those types of ranges? That's very possible in a world of a shallow recession. We would say a deeper recession takes us out to the 175 to 200. But we do believe that it's something that it's very, it's a challenging time. You know, you have the Fed who's doing something that it typically doesn't do, do try to be proactive around cutting um, in a world with, la- with not lots of imbalances. And so how that plays out, can the Fed pull this off? We feel like, the, the, as I said, the, the first half of the year is um, probably more of the same, where credit does okay. And it's something for the second half of the year we'd have to watch carefully about which way we inflect. Are we going to inflect to shallow recession? Then that's a scenario where the gains of the first half could be given back in the second half with wider spreads. Uh, and then, or do we go into, boy, the economy um, just doesn't seem to want to slow down. Fed, maybe they cut once or twice, they stop. And we're in a world where credit does okay in that scenario and spreads are range bound. So before we talk to Steve Flynn at Bloomberg Intelligence in a bit more detail about telecoms, I just wanted to get you to sum up the one thing that keeps you awake at night, Chris. What's the biggest worry? It doesn't seem like you're worried about defaults or bankruptcies or or blow up in private credit or even commercial real estate, which is worrying a lot of our listeners. But um, do do you have one big thing that that really worries you? You know, I think the the big, there's, there's two derailers to our themes. One, which doesn't keep me up, but if we had a sudden recession, nothing appears to be in place for that. So that would be something that you would get massive valuation changes, meaning a, a bull steepening of size and then widening credit spreads. And we don't think the, you know, the setup is, is right for that today. That risk grows over time. The second is that inflation comes back is the Fed can't tighten and increases recession risk, or they tighten once or twice and not enough work has been done to bring inflation down to 2% because then we could be back into a world, maybe not as bad as 22. 2022 was quite a year for the stock market as well, not in a good way, for the stock market as well as uh, fixed income, that you get into a world where it's risk off all around. So if I think about that, you know, our central tendency is this. How do we veer away from those two? And they're, they're the two. Great stuff. Chris Allwine, Global Head of Credit at Vanguard. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Great. Good. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Also want to say a big thanks to Lisa Lee with Bloomberg News in London. Brilliant to see you again. Cheers. Thank you. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. So Steve Flynn, Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you very much for coming on. You look at telecoms. Dish has been a massive distressed situation. They're moving assets around. The bonds are dropping. Bondholders are suing. What's the situation? Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely a lot going on here. So um, EchoStar acquired Dish on December 31st, the last day of the year. And the combined company has a very complicated capital structure. There's about $23 billion of debt. 
issued from three different entities, and you're talking about unsecured bonds, convertible bonds, secured obligations. So there's a lot of different parts in the capital structure. And now both of these companies were controlled, or and now the combined con- companies controlled by Charles Ergen. And what they've done now is um, take a number of aggressive steps. And now why are they doing these steps? Let's back up a second. Number one, uh, the combined company has, like I said, about $23 billion of debt. They have about $3 billion of cash, yet there's significant cash outlays coming um, that's more than the cash they have. They have bond maturities, they have buyouts of minority spectrum partners, they have spectrum payments, and likely continued free cash flow deficits as they build out their wireless network and get more and more into the wireless business. And think about it, when they're going into wireless, they're competing against the you know three giants, ATT, Verizon, and T-Mobile US. So this is a big challenge for the company. And now what they've done is, over the past couple of weeks, they've done uh, three aggressive moves. First, they moved a lot of assets away from the DISH entities, away from the DISH bondholders. Uh, this includes wireless spectrum licenses, about 3 million pay TV subscribers, and also a claim to a large intercompany loan. So that has been moved away. These are assets taken away from uh, the bondholders. Second, uh, they announced a uh, uh, debt-for-debt exchange, whereby uh, they're trying to get some of the convertible bondholders at DISH to exchange into uh, new secured bonds that are actually backed by the spectrum that they moved away from DISH. Now they're saying, okay, you can move over into this new bond, but you know what? You're going to take a big haircut to your principal outstanding. And then they, then a few days later, they launched the same type of deal uh, with regard to the pay TV business. So they took about $3 million of the pay TV of the satellite TV subscribers, moved them into a separate entity, and now they're asking bondholders for the pay TV business to swap uh, to new secured bonds uh, in this um, new uh, pay TV entity, uh, but also some of those bonds are asking to take large haircut to the principal owed. Um, so what has happened, a lot of these dish bonds were trading at pretty low levels uh, prior to the uh, merger due to the you know significant liquidity needs at the company and um, some of the challenges to the business. And so some of the bonds, like for example, trading um, at about 50 cents in the dollar uh, a few weeks ago, deal closes, they announce all these aggressive moves, and they've fallen about 10 cents or more. So some of them are even trading at 40 cents or less than 40 cents in the dollar. So it's a pretty complicated situation. You have news reports of various creditor groups forming and challenging uh, the moves of the company. So this is still very early stages. There's, I'm sure we're going to see lots of news flow and lots of actions and potential lawsuits. I think one of those swaps was announced on a late on a Friday night just for a long weekend as well. So they tried to dodge us, but we still will track it, watch our news flow. But um, what I wanted to ask really, Steve, is it's a huge issuer. It's one of the biggest issuers in the uh, high yield index that we have, um, very widely held. At what point does it start to have a broader impact on high yield bonds? Well, yeah, I think you can start looking at um, the sector and, and overall um, some of the more um, beaten up names in high yield, right? So think about another company in the communication sector, Lumen Technologies. Uh, this is another company that's over levered, too much debt, and complicated capital structure, debt issued from various entities, secured, unsecured. And on October 31st, they announced um, a large debt for debt exchange that they negotiated with certain holders, also included new um, bonds that, that, that they would um, issue and get additional cash in. And um, there's a lot of different creditor groups formed there 
that are also challenging the company. Now, that deal was supposed to close um, by December 31st. Uh, they need uh, agreement from the revolving credit facility lenders, and now they've pushed that off to January 31st. So we're still waiting to see what happens there. Um, so again, I think this could be more common. Uh, another big high-yield name in communications that has different layers of debt is a company like Altis USA. It issues debt from its uh, main cable entity, the CSC Holdings um, box. And there, you know, you have lots of bonds that trade at 50 to 70 cents on the dollar, some of the unsecured bonds. Now, the company did issue um, some senior bonds uh, about a week ago, and they raised a couple billion dollars, so they definitely boosted the liquidity there. But I think that's another one that, you know, has some of the same characteristics that we've seen with uh, a Lumen and, and a Dish. So that's another one to think about going forward. And you've got to kind of wonder at what point does this affect sentiment for um you know for that asset class you know do, does it does it worry investors who got so used to there being no defaults for so long um you know there's all these things potentially blowing up yeah so communications is the widest sector in high yield right so if you look at yield if you look at spread it is the widest now there's some sector issues going on here increased competition uh you know changing in the in the way we view media right the landscape of everything moving from cable to streaming and more and more competition for broadband. So there's a lot of things going on. Sector is always highly levered. There's a lot of debt. And then now you have certain of these capital structures that are feeling very, very heavy. The only way we're going to make sense of it is by reading Stephen Flynn's research on the Bloomberg at Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As I say, do check out Steve's research on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's great stuff. Or contact him directly if you need more information. And thanks again to Chris Allwine, Global Head of Credit at Vanguard, and to Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Give us a review, tell your friends, or email me directly at jcrombie8 at Bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next time on The Credit Edge. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.